0: From WPLN News, I'm Khalil Ekolona, and this is Nashville. People from all walks of life enjoy and cherish the works of Beethoven, Bach, and Mozart. But when it comes to who plays this music on those classical stages, there's not a lot of diversity. African-American musicians have been underrepresented in the classical musical world for years, even here in Music City. But there's a new symphony in town working to change that. This weekend, the Nashville African-American Wind Symphony will hold its first performance. Later this hour, we'll talk with the symphony's founder and a few young classical musicians about their musical journeys and what they want to see next. But first, if you're new to Nashville, like me, and people look at you funny when you try to pronounce a street or town name, you're not alone. I'm talking about De Mumbria and Lafayette, just to name a few. Even longtime residents can't always explain why those names are pronounced the way they are. This prompted a listener to write into our podcast, "Curious Nashville." So, WPLN's Mariana Bacayao took a deep dive into some of those stories behind the names, and she joins us now. Hey, Mariana! How Mariana? How are you?
1: Hey, Khalil.
0: So, what was the question posed to "Curious Nashville" that initiated this search?
1: So the exact wording of the question is why do Middle Tennesseans pronounce Lafayette so differently than the rest of the world? Um, Mm -hmm. That's a bit of a hyperbole. (laughs) There are other places in the South that pronounce uh, it Fayette rather than Fayette, but most of those places don't have the law in front of them, which kind of makes uh, Middle Tennessee unique in that regard. And that also got us looking at a lot of different unique pronunciations that we have here in middle Tennessee.
0: So like this kind of question stumps a lot of people. When you set out to find an answer for this, how did you start?
1: Yeah. Um, I talked to some local historians, um, and a local linguist, um, also got to talk to some tourists and ask them how they pronounce it. Just, uh, looking at some of these street names, uh, and I think it's important to know like the history of how uh, a lot of these places got their names and then the evolution of how we pronounce those things today.
0: One of the people you talked with is linguist Rick Morris, who ran through a bunch of Tennessee town names with you. Let's listen.
2: Lebanon. I would argue that one's actually two syllables. Lebanon. 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 Lobelville. Murray, McEwen. Medina. A lot of these I didn't know. I think I might have heard some of them, but let's see, Mon Eagle, Moscow, Madrid. Okay,
0: so Mariana, it's not like Madrid, Spain, noted. How did we get those? So, how did we get those names and pronunciations?
1: Yeah, so I think it all sort of goes back to revolutionary war era. Tennessee. That's the time period that a lot of the places in the state are getting named. So you have a lot of war heroes, obviously, Marquis de Lafayette being one of them. You also have an appreciation in America for similar revolutions that are happening uh, overseas. So you have a lot of, you know, city names abroad also being, uh, given new life here in Middle Tennessee, but then you also have a lot of these names are in different languages and we're not a very multilingual society here in Middle Tennessee. So you have like the naturalization of taking these names from different languages and making them easier to pronounce in English.
0: So what made you want to take on this particular Curious Nashville question?
1: So uh, <laughs> I, I've i been a host here now a year, and when I was first getting settled in, I think one of the trickiest things to master were the pronunciations of some local places that at a glance I thought I knew, but I did not know because we pronounce things a little differently here. And so getting to know like the origin and the history behind how we got here also helps for, you know, on air making sure that I'm not mispronouncing a place the way that the locals pronounce it.
0: You gave us this, shall we say, highlight reel of mispronunciations of your own name from right here on Public Radio. Mariana Bac- uh, Bacagiao. Mariana Bacalo. Mariana All Mar- right, Mariana, Mariana Bacchiao. Mariana Bacchiao is with us. Man, I feel like I want to laugh, but I also know the feeling of having a name that a lot of people struggle to pronounce correctly, but sometimes it stings a bit too, right?
1: Yes, it it definitely does, especially when you have given people pronouncers, but also I've been on the other end of that and I know how stressful that is, but you know, you, you really do have to have a sense of humor about it because it's not like you're able to sit down every person who has to pronounce your name and explain, okay, <laughs> yeah, I have a Cuban surname. So like, e- even the name that I say on air is in some ways an anglicized version of my name. If you're a Spanish speaker, it's Mariana Vacayao, but in English, it's Mariana Vacayao. Um, and that's still, it's a, it's a tricky thing that trips a lot of people up. You always gotta explain two Ls in Spanish, make the Y sound. Uh-huh. Uh, So in some ways, I do feel (laughs) for the people who hear their towns mispronounced because it it also happens to me.
0: Yeah, happens to me, too. Khalil E. it's not doesn't necessarily roll off of the tongue. So, you know, we all want to pronounce names correctly, especially those of us who are newcomers, like you said. We want to show we know what's up. But what advice do you have for folks who are new to the region and who are just encountering a street or city name that is entirely new to them?
1: Well, I think it the tricky thing about Middle Tennessee is sometimes you don't know that you don't know how to pronounce something until you hear a local pronunciation. And so one thing that could help, (laughs) I mean, listening to public radio (laughs)
0: Mm
1: -hmm. or, you know, just talking to locals and getting a sense of how things are pronounced that way. I mean, also understanding you're not always going to get it right on the first try.
0: That is WPLN host, Mariana Bacayao. You can hear Mariana's story at WPLN.org slash curious. And while you're there, you can ask your question about the region. We might just set out to answer them in our next installment of the podcast. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to jam out to some local classical music as Nashville's new African-American symphony gets ready for their first performance this weekend. Are you a lover of classical music? Well then tweet us about it at this is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Kalile Colonna, and this is Nashville. There is a new symphony in town. The rehearsals are full of love for classical music, and when they get together and practice, there's also a whole lot of this. Sometimes you just gotta stop rehearsal and laugh. This group is not just about playing music, it's also about building community and creating representation for black musicians in classical music spaces. It's called the Nashville African American Wind Symphony and my next guest is its founder, Bruce Ayers. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Oh, I'm doing great, my friend. How about yourself?
3: Well, well, thank you for having us here today.
0: Pleasure to have you with us. So, you know, set the stage for us. What is a wind wind symphony?
3: A wind symphony is a group of individuals that play in an ensemble setting, um, wind band, literature, uh, music. And so in this um, ensemble setting, it's not encompassing of the, what we know as the classical orchestra with the violin, the viola, cello, string, bass. We are a wind symphony, so we have the primary instruments like the flute, clarinet, uh, saxophone, and including percussion. So there's a kind of um, a discrepancy there. We're we're not known as um, the classical orchestra. Okay. There's a difference, yep. There's
0: a little bit of French horn in there? There is French horn, yes, sir. Awesome. So
3: tell me, where did your musical journey begin? Oh, man, my musical journey began um, about the age of four, I come from a uh, musical family, and so music has been pretty much a part of my life since I was born. Um, at four, I started playing the piano, what with, with my grandmother would say, boy, stop banging on that piano. To me, I was creating beautiful music. <laughs> um, and so my grandfather would step in and say, hey, we go, let him play. Um, he might be going somewhere with this. And so. Um, At the age of six, I started taking lessons at church. Uh, Church was a big part of my family. Um, I come from a very spiritual background. And so there was a guy that um, he was offering music lessons on Saturday mornings at the church uh, free of charge. And so there were um, people of all ages that would take these lessons. And I'm six years old, you know, coming in. They're like, what can he do? And so I'd pull up my little uh, keyboard and... I start playing, and they're they're looking like, oh, wow. I wasn't playing too much, just maybe a C major chord, but (laughs) with my small fingers being able to play that uh, consistently, I think that's kind of what um, made people start investing in my future as far as music is concerned. How'd you get into wind instruments? So wind instruments started because um, my older cousin, well, my entire family was in the band, but my uh, cousin, she was maybe 10 years older than I am, and so... She'd go to band practice, and I'd always um, go with her. I grew up; uh, my my grandparents helped raise us. I, um, uh, as my mom worked night shift, and so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I would stay over at my grandparents' house. And my cousin also lived there as well. So I'd go to band practice with her, uh, and I'd play her instruments. My sister, uh, she played the clarinet in fifth grade, and so at that time I was probably about seven years old, and she stopped playing it. Now the, clar- the clarinet was not in good condition, and so it didn't work, but I'd play the clarinet like, <laughs> <laughs> like uh like there was the most beautiful sound coming out of it. And so I'd march around the house with it. Um, I sit and try to recreate these themes that I'd heard from my favorite shows. I was even the kid that was marching in the parade next to the band. My mom would make me a uniform. Wow! Uh, march it down the street with the band. So um, I grew a, a, a passion for music at a very early age. And so when my parents um, realized this, they invested in some music lessons for me. Uh, And this is before I started beginner band in fifth grade. Um, I was already taking lessons in second grade, and so that kind of set me up for success moving forward. So you know,
0: we've talked a lot on this show about the lack of representation in many musical genres. But you know, what makes playing classical music different? What are some of the barriers that people might not realize that live in the classical music world?
3: Um. I think some of the barriers are just exposure, um, especially in our community at young ages. It's not something that we just do at leisure. Mm -hmm. Um, And that just comes from the, I guess, not knowing that that world exists or the stereotypes that are associated with it as being white music. Mm -hmm. Um, And just really um, being, not being, the students not being able to be engaged. Um, when we look at it from a standpoint of, I don't like the word inner city, but when we look at it from that standpoint, um, there's just a lack of representation. So the students aren't being able to see themselves in these seats. And so I think that's a, a barrier when you, when you don't see yourself. How do you um, begin to kind of cultivate that lifelong love of it? So, how did you realize? How did you come to create something here, like in Nashville, for African American musicians? Um, so, going to college, I attended two HBCUs for undergrad, and then my master's. I went to Virginia State University. And I went to Tennessee State University for my master's, and so I came across several um, wonderful musicians, and most of them weren't music majors. And so, like, for myself, I was a music major, so I was always going to um, a symposium for music or these conferences um, and also participating in these extracurricular, like, bands, like honors bands and ensembles. And so I thought that when these students graduate, these students that that, um, invested a lot of time and education and money into perfecting that craft, what happens to them after they graduate? How do they still do something that was a big part of their life, which was music, specifically performing in an ensemble setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wanted to provide something for us to to continue um, to do what we loved. And so that's kind of like how the ensemble got started. My next
0: guest is one of those musicians you were thinking about. Ashley Crawford is a flautist and the board president of the Nashville African-American Wind Symphony. She's also known as Flute Bay on Instagram Ashley welcome to the show
4: hi thanks for having me
0: thank you for being here Mm -hmm. so you've been playing the flute since you were 10 years old yes what drew you to the instrument
4: oh do we have enough time to talk about that (laughs) (laughs) um so around that age um I'm probably going to give away some some information here but Pocahontas (laughs) was in theaters okay
0: (laughs) I saw it in theaters myself I was grown though (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: <laughs> <laughs> so um my dad took um myself and my cousin to go see this film and you know Disney films are filled with all types of music. So um you know native indigenous music is usually filled with you know percussion and all types of flute sounds. So I'm hearing these sounds and I'm like, "Dad, what's that? Like what 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 is what's going on? What's making these pretty sounds?" And he's like, "Um, well, I think that's a flute." And I'm like, "I want to do that. I want mm. I want that." So um, later on down the line, uh, my elementary school had hired a music teacher and she came up with the bright idea to start a band for fourth and fifth graders, which was unheard of at that time. Um, So she had an instrument petting zoo where we all came in and was running around trying all these different instruments. And I tried the brass instruments. Sorry, Bruce was pretty unlucky on that. (laughs) Um, Tried some percussion um and she put the flute head joint in front of me and she said okay do your lips like this and blow and i blew and the sound came out just clear as day and she was like oh you're going on flute so she wrote the notes and note home give it to your parents we want you playing the flute um luckily my dad was ahead of the game so he came home that night with a flute and (laughs) um a method book and was like okay you know figure it out so um, waiting for the first band rehearsal, I started to go through this book and figure things out. And I learned the first three notes on the flute by myself. Um, and by the time we got to the first rehearsal, the funny thing was I'm left handed. So I started the flute on the wrong side. OK, so when I got there, I was like, oh, look what I can do. And she was mortified, like, oh, my gosh, we have to fix this. So she put <laughs> she put me on the right side Um Nothing was lost. Well, I was kind of embarrassed at the time, you know, for a 10-year-old. But um, after that, the rest was history. I, I pretty much stuck with it from then on out.
0: So you're this young flautist with dreams of playing professionally. Mm-hmm. What was your idea of success at that time?
4: Um, well, the first classical album I had heard was The Nutcracker, which... Um, and I'm hearing all these flute excerpts, the Sugar Plum Fairy and just all of this virtuosic type playing. And I knew I wanted to achieve that and work toward that. Um, so I had always envisioned myself from that point on um, getting that that symphony chair or or being in that setting and playing in that type of environment in that music. But it was just, you know, only audible. I never um, at that point seeing a symphony orchestra or you know um, so just listening to it I knew I wanted to be a part of that and I wanted to play that type of literature
0: so how that how did that change over the years?
4: Um, I stuck with it consistently um, throughout middle school, high school, um, undergrad and i it got really really serious um in my graduate years at Belmont. Um, I was principal chair for the symphony orchestra there, Mm -hmm. uh, competed in concerto competitions and won. So like, I was just really, really, really into it hard. Um, After I graduated, I went on the audition circuit. I auditioned for the Chicago Symphony, the Seattle Symphony, the LA Field. Um, Those things didn't go as planned, you know? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I had to pivot a little bit. Because the thing with those type of uh, jobs, they only come up so often, like either, you know, someone unfortunately passes away out of the seat or someone retires, and that takes quite a bit of time, you know. So I had to figure out something, like how am I going to satisfy this urge to, you know, play classical music. Um, So I joined the Nashville Wind Ensemble at the time under Dr. Steve Rhodes, um, and I started to teach privately. Eventually, um, I decided to pivot a bit out of classical music because with it um, comes so much expectation Mm -hmm. and perfectionism. And I was um, pretty much tired of doing what someone was telling me to do on my instrument. And I wanted to um, do my own thing. And while I still play and perform with those fundamentals because, you know, that's what I essentially learned, you know, how to learn uh, how to play the instrument. Um, I used that to propel me into other genres such as R&B and hip hop and jazz and funk and everything like that.
0: So you pivoted away from that traditional, those traditional classical spaces Mm -hmm. and created your own space online. Your persona is called Flute Bay. Yes. Let's take a listen. Now, in these videos, it looks like you're having so much fun. What have you been able to find, like in this kind of work, that you weren't able to find in the classical music world?
4: Well, it is fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, I was able to find uh, freedom mm. of expression and and just being more liberal in the way that I play um, with classical music you know you're playing all of this traditional literature that has been performed hundreds and hundreds and thousands of times like how many times can we play a mozart and g how many times can we play a martin Ballade or something like that like it's only it's on, only gonna go so far yeah as far as interpretation and if you interpret too much then you're breaking some rules or it's blasphemy in classical mm-hmm. music versus if I'm branching out and I'm doing my own thing. No one can tell me what's a mistake. No one can tell me, hey, this is not how you do this thing. And based off of that excerpt that you, you just played, there are still classical elements in that, along with a lot of other elements from different genres that I, I grabbed from. But Can you tell me where a mistake was or can you tell me like oh you should have structured it this way like no what you heard was someone having fun and you you know you you felt that and i felt that as a player as opposed to making sure something was just so perfect and polished you know before performing it or posting it or whatever i find that really
0: interesting like this if we're going to have different pieces of art and all types of innovation in order to evolve it, we've got to be revolutionary. Mm-hmm. There were these classical musicians that you were talking about, these classical composers that did radical revolutionary things that really pushed the genre forward. Mm-hmm. Um, I really find that fantastic that you did that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ecolona. We're talking this hour about representation and black classical musicians and symphonies and orchestras. So, so Bruce, you know we was just letting go of some of that perfectionism that we can feel so mm-hmm. important in this traditional space. Is that something that you were trying to do with the Nashville African-American wind symphony? Yeah,
3: for sure. Um, I think perfectionism as it relates to what we do is a burden that we place on ourselves, trying to be so perfect, trying to please the masses. Um, and so when, like, even if I foreshadow to Sunday, there's going to be people that's going to be listening at us. Um, trying to look for that perfection. Mm -hmm. Um, And they may not find it, and that's not our purpose. We're going to sound good, we're going to sound clean, um, but it's to cultivate a lifelong love of music. Uh, We have fun when we're doing As you guys heard the small clip in rehearsal, we do laugh, um, but we do take what we are doing seriously as well. Um, What we want people to come and hear and experience from us is the love for music, the passion in the music. Um, when we when people leave, we want to have evoked some type of feeling. Um, and so that's just, that's our goal.
0: Perfect time to introduce my next guest. Lee Pringle is the founder and artistic director of the Color of Music Festival, and he joins us now. Lee, thank you so much for being with us. You know, t- <laughs> they, tell us more about the Color of Music Festival and why you created it.
2: Well, first of all, I want to thank my colleagues that were on before for their talent and their energy towards this evolution of black music. And I had the privilege of meeting Bruce a year and a half ago when he was thinking of starting his or or planning to start his his Wind Symphony. And um, you know, we're the only culture, black culture on the continent of North America that can go from the indigenous music of the African influences we got from the continent up to the high classics. And so, you know, hearing the flautist talk about how she enjoyed the classical discipline, but having the freedom to reinterpret and do things, you know, the classical uh, genre had its evolution and what was done in Baroque periods was completely changed by the time the symphonic orchestra that we know today. So I started the Color of Music Festival to give folks like her, like Bruce, the opportunity, if they choose to, to perform the work that they have gotten, postgraduate degrees, in many cases, um, to that perfection. And because out of 1700 orchestras in North America, that includes Canada, less than 2% of those musicians are of African ancestry. And there's a lot of complexities in that, but suffice it to say, our mission is to bring them to the stage From everything from chamber ensembles, uh, symposium topics uh, dealing with the Black classical diaspora, up to the Masterworks series where you have 90 people on stage and a full symphonic work. So I started the color music for that Mm. sole purpose. So
0: why haven't there been more Black people? Why haven't they gained more prominence in the classical music
2: realm? because there needs to be more people like myself and Bruce in the executive wing making artistic decisions. And unfortunately, all classical genres are still mainly dominated by white males. Uh, white females have made some inroads. But until you have people who bring their life experiences to the decision making, you're going to get the type of art form that is the sum of their life experiences. I think Bruce and uh, the floutists, and forgive me for not having her name um, mentioned, you know, they were probably the only ones taking the the talent that they had and staying on that course to get to the point of being able to provide that perfection for that foundational type of um, uh, learning that they got. And so, I think a lot of it has to do with exposure, having access to, and, you know, giving black kids access to classical music changes their lives. So
0: tell me a little bit further, what type of impact do you hope your festival has?
2: I hope, number one, that that it will inspire more young people to see themselves as arts administrators. Number two, I hope that they will look at classical music as an opportunity to take them places that they can't go physically. Because music is such a global art form, composers come from various corners of the world. You know, as they learn about a composer, they learn about where the composer's folk music came from. And I think by having the display of the various hues of black people globally, that's an inspiration. And I can tell you having gone through beginner's band and high school band, that my music educator was an inspiration for me. And for many, many kids, music puts them on a a academic trajectory that they do better in math and sciences. They generally get higher education. And um, there are all these benefits when a kid learns piano, violin, or a woodwind instrument like the flute. So um, I think that The more we get kids into the arts, the broader their view on the world becomes. So, Bruce, when is the first
0: show where people can see the Nashville African-American Wind Symphony perform?
2: Yes, our
3: first show, our inaugural concert is the theme is a celebration of freedom. It is going to be on Sunday, June 19th at Mm -hmm. four o'clock on the campus of Belmont University in the McAfee Concert Hall. Ashley, what can audiences look forward to?
4: Um, They can look forward to seeing a community that isn't normally in this space performing this type of music. I hope that they walk away with um, a higher level of awareness and um, education about um, African-American musicians in this space, along with learning more about Juneteenth as well. Um, And overall, just having a wonderful experience in music
0: I look forward to it. That was Ashley Crawford, a.k.a. Flute Bay, and Bruce Ayers (laughs) from the Nashville African-American Wind Symphony. They were joined by Lee Pringle, founder of the Color of Music Festival. Thanks to you all for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you you for having us. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk with two young musicians and an educator about how... To bridge the gap between African Americans and the classical music world, are you a classical musician trying to make your way into the industry? Tweet us about it at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Akolona, and this is Nashville. The future of classical music, as with the future of everything, lies in the hands of our young people. Without much representation of Black classical musicians as is in American symphonies, a lot of young Black musicians have some barriers to break through. Joining me now, is Xavion Davidson, a bassoonist and a recent graduate of Stewart Creek High School. He's attending Rice University in the fall. Xavion, <clears throat> congratulations on graduating school. Welcome to This Is Nashville. Welcome, I'm, uh, thank you, there. I'm glad to be here. Oh, it's great to have you with us, my man. So tell me, how'd you get started playing the bassoon?
5: For me, I was in fifth grade. My parents are both musicians. My dad plays trombone, tuba, baritone, a few other things. And my mom went to school for classical singing. And so my dad, you know, we're driving in the car one day. And the idea of me being in band, I talked to him about it. He was like, yeah, you should do it. We're musicians. You might be pretty good at this. Mm -hmm. And me, I've always been one to keep an open mind. I'm like, you know, sure, sure, why not? Went in there. And I end up getting tested because we had to do, like, pitch tests to see if we could See, basically, that we weren't tone deaf. Yes. See rhythm tests, stuff like that. And we were also shown a variety of instruments. And I didn't know exactly what the bassoon was. My mom has a funny and fairly lengthy anecdote about it. But I I thought it was the oboe. Anyway, what I liked about the bassoon was it had a really deep sound, and it really it really had a unique sound. It looked very challenging, and I always enjoyed a challenge. So I'm like, yeah, I want to play that. And... I'm sure for every for all the musical people out there, when I say that my band director allowed me to, you'll be like what? You don't start kids out on bassoon, you start them on clarinet uh-huh. well, I'm a little bit different, I started bassoon in 5th grade, I've been playing for this my 8th year, and I got serious about it when I met my first teacher I had a few lessons with her in 6th grade, didn't really know her, I completely wasted them, didn't practice at all Okay, but <laughs> I ended up my dad drove me to her studio at the beginning of my 7th grade year, and he was like, Yeah, this is your teacher, Dr. Maya Stone. Since I'm paying for lessons, I expect you to practice. Mm-hmm. That's so a good deal. I did, and I also, I'd heard of this thing called Midstate, which is basically a band composed of some of the best musicians in the region, and I really wanted to be a part of that. Awesome. So I end up, I worked hard, and safe to say I ended up making it. In fact, I was the only 7th grader who did that year.
0: Wow. That that's like a freshman making the varsity team basketball.
5: Yeah, I was very fortunate, and when I got there, after after the event, it was incredibly taxing. I never played that much because it was hours of rehearsal, but I loved the social aspect of it. I loved seeing so many kids who worked just as hard as I did Mm -hmm. to become a part of this band. It was like, wow, they're really. I'm not like the only one who really really takes this seriously. Okay.
0: I want to play a recording of your music real quick, but I have a question. You mentioned that your family is a musical family. Yeah. Is anyone tone deaf? No. no okay. So. Just want to make yeah. sure. I don't want them to be like the musical black sheep of the family. You have so many talented musicians. So here we have this clip of you playing the first movement of the Mozart Bassoon Concerto on bassoon. <laughs> This performance is like eight minutes long, all memorized, hardly seems like you're stopping to breathe. <laughs> really, really impressive. So you, know, you you talked about how you got into the bassoon. What do you love about playing the bassoon?
5: Well, it's definitely not the dynamic range. It's got to be the worst of all the instruments ever. But I really enjoyed the tone of it, I enjoyed the variety of colors, I enjoyed the incredible range because as I'm sure you heard, you heard it hit a really low note. Mm-hmm. and as far as, I can't remember what the top note was, but I can actually go about an octave above that. So, I mean, just to really put that in perspective, it is a huge range. <clears throat> Only really taught by, like, the clarinet, and end violin. So, I enjoy the range. I enjoy the variety of tone. I enjoy the fact that it sounds, that it can sound, like, fairly goofy, fairly funny. And it can also sound, like, very serious. Like, if you hear the opening of, say, Tchaikovsky 6, which is, like, very morbid. And then you also hear things like Sorcerer's Apprentice, where it's like, bum, bum, ba-da-da-dum, da
0: So it sounds like you really love the emotional range. Yeah, like, it's, it's really awesome. That is fantastic. I'd like to bring in my next guest, Jabril Muhammad, plays the trumpet and is a recent graduate of Tennessee State University. Jabril, congratulations on graduating, and thanks for being with us, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. How are you doing? Doing all right, my man. So, you know, tell us, what has your experience been like breaking into the classical world? My experience breaking into the classical world, it has been,
6: how can I say, it has been fun, but a little stressful on myself. Um, How do I say, I kind of hold myself to a high standard. Um, I look to inspire people. I look to hold my community on my back every time I go to perform classical music. So it can be stressful in that regard, but it is extremely fun, extremely thought-provoking,
0: extremely um, innovative. Now, I understand that you want to teach classical music to young African-Americans. Why?
6: Um, uh, well, firstly, let's start. I'm, I'm I'm from Memphis, Tennessee, and anyone that knows anything about Memphis, Tennessee, you know that blues is... Heavily, heavily influenced in Memphis, Tennessee, mm-hmm. and growing up, I've I've seen, I've seen like, how do I say the neglect of classical music, in the black community, like um like Bruce Ayres uh, said, it's, it's like, it's kind of perceived as, white music,
1: mm-hmm. in a
6: sense, so I want to be able to get in front of these black students and I want to be able to show them that hey, we can do it too, and it's not as hard as it
0: seems. I, that's interesting because, you know, you think about like hip-hop, the popularity of hip-hop, and one of the greatest producers ever is Dr. Dre who uses a lot of classical samples and classical themes within that music. Is that something that you and your contemporaries talk about when you th- talk about when you're listening to, to hip-hop or Dr. Dre or different forms of music? I'm sorry, can you ask that one more time? I'm just asking about, you know, Dr. Dre... We produced everybody from Snoop Dogg, Kendrick Lamar's first album, Eminem, 50 Cent, even his own work had a lot of classical music within that. And it's a, it was a good bridge for people to get into classical music who are strictly hip hop listeners. Is that something that you and your, your contemporaries have talked about, spoken about, like the influx of classical in hip hop when it's used?
6: Of course, of course, 100%. That is... How do I say even another avenue for us as classical musicians, we can go into the studio, we can uh, lay some tracks for uh, a hip hop artist. I've recently laid some tracks for a couple of hip hop artists uh, here in Memphis. So yes, sir, that is a
0: big bridge that we can cross. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Ikelona. We're talking with young black classical musicians about their journeys into the classical realm. My next guest has been teaching young musicians for decades. Margaret Campbell-Holman is the executive director and founder of Choral Arts Link, a nonprofit that has partnered with the Nashville Symphony for 25 seasons. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us.
7: Thank you, Khalil, for inviting me.
0: It's a pleasure to have you. So, you know, tell me more about what you do at Choral Arts Link.
7: Well, it's a a legacy that we're trying to relay into the black community. I'm very appreciative of listening to these two young men because it's that type of music, plus other types of genres, that from the choral perspective, is a long legacy in the black community here in Nashville and other areas.
0: You know, Nashville is music city. And you were talking about that legacy. We have this rich history of African-American music in this in our town, but a lot of people don't know and talk about the classical music. They don't put that in the conversation. What is it that, what's the history of black people in classical music that's not very well known?
7: The stories have not been told. The stories are there, but they have not been told. Uh, Let me give a, a small example. Please. In order for my husband to play in the band at Pearl High School, little background, Schools in Nashville were segregated. Everyone knows that. City schools and county schools were separate. In the city schools, there was Pearl High School and Cameron High School. Those are the black high schools that were here in Nashville. In order for to get to get in the band, which started at, say, uh, Cameron High School was seven through twelve. Pearl High School was ten through twelve because you went to junior high school, seven through ninth grade, and then went into high school. Mm-hmm. So in order for him to move from junior high school to high school and get in the band. And the band played at a high level because the band had concert band or symphonic band, marching band, jazz band, and pep band, even then, in segregated school. He had to learn scales that met the, the model set by the high school, and he had never picked up a trumpet. Wow. He taught himself over the summer because when he went before Marcus Gunner, who happened to be the teacher at that point, you had to meet a certain level, mm-hmm. which meant speed, accuracy, and tone. My husband met it. That's how hard he had to work to get to that level to walk in and be in the band so that and that was classical music. Mm-hmm. So it was a long-held tradition that even though we may not have had even though we did have what we called what was called separate but equal which we call separate but unequal
0: mm-hmm.
7: that the repertoire of the canon which was still basically European Even in our black schools, the canon would expose children and youth to the depth of African-American composers, poets, and authors. So that was the standard that he had to meet. So coming into this legacy, it was the same emphasis I'm hearing these two young men talk about, that the stories are there. No one has pulled the stories together and has shared it. Because you need to know, and our young people need to know, it's there. We've begun to lose it but we need to recapture it and I hear it captured in these two young artists, really are artists.
0: Is there is there anything else you want young people to know about uh, black Americans and classical music?
7: I think you had Lee Pringle on yes. earlier. That's one person that I go to. He He brought his organization here and did a series. We'd love to have that back. That's the type of instrumentation organization and artistry that our children need to see across age groups. How do we bring that back? Grab the stories and tell the stories and share the stories. Appreciate this opportunity because the stories run deep. For instance, before the new organization that you interviewed earlier today, which is premiering at Juneteenth, Mm -hmm. there was an organization called Metropolitan Wind Ensemble. And that organization tried to reintegrate and reset the t- task of sharing with students across age groups classical music and that's all they played. And mm-hmm. these came from jazz backgrounds, blues backgrounds, but their training was in classical music. So it, but my husband always said the classical music training prepared you for anything else you wanted to do, but it was the ground source, that classical music training and that classical music canon of music is as much a part of our heritage, black heritage, as it is white heritage. It, he looked at it as, it's our heritage, and we play it and play it as well and enjoy it as well and are as artistic as anyone else.
0: You know, my parents taught my, sis, my siblings and I about Marian Anderson and Leontine Price, these wonderful opera singers. And they taught us about classical music and how the classically trained musicians of a 100 years ago went on to become the legends of jazz because they were so well-skilled at this. They took this training and they formed it into a new genre that influenced R&B, soul, hip-hop. We can go down the list That's right. of all of them. Uh, Z- Zavian and Jabril, did you know of that deep history with classical music and African-Americans? Admittedly, I'd, I did not.
5: Um, I, I still honestly need to research a lot. I, there's, there's just so many stories to be told, like Florence Price, for example, um, it's like some of her music is still being found in a house in Illinois. The, I mean, these are just stories that really aren't told and they really should be told
0: a lot more. Yeah. Jabril, what about you? Uh, no, sir, I am learning a lot today.
7: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Margaret, you want to say that, something?
7: That's good because we want folks to know, we want them to be willing and ready to hear it. And you're the ones who can tell the stories to others because this is part of the heritage that you're walking forward with. And that's so muy importante to this generation and the generations that follow you. Not me, because I may not be here anymore. So you walk forward what is needed to keep this legacy going. It's a strong legacy.
0: Yes, you know, now Margaret, you've been doing this work for such a long time. Do you see the field of classical music changing and becoming more diverse?
7: Good question. First part of my answer It's already diverse, it just hasn't been played. Mm
0: -hmm.
7: You mentioned Florence Price music being found. There are several, Kelly Corcoran here in Nashville has a group that is digging in and finding and playing music by African Americans. And there are others who are doing that besides her. But digging into it and using it and getting it in the colleges and in preparatory for teachers to come out and play, we have students who now who want it but the teachers are not aware of the repertoire that's available and the repertoire is there and it still needed to be discovered.
0: What do you think needs to happen next? What do you want to happen next?
7: More conversations like this spread across not just Nashville but nationally linked with other WPLN studios like you have here telling the stories especially with our young people involved and grinding down to the source, and we have many resources. There's a man right here at Fisk University who is a band person. He is known around the country for the music he composes. He's not known here. What's his name? I can't think of his name. I have to look him up.
0: Okay, we could do that. Um, I want to ask Jabril, you know, you're thinking of this, and, and you talked a little bit about what you want to do with your career. What kind of opportunities do you want to create in your pursuit of classical music?
6: Opportunities for others?
0: Yes, yes, sir.
6: Well, the opportunities I want to create for others, I want to be able to basically pave a pathway for young musicians to pursue a higher education. One of the things I want to do is I want to be able to get into these middle schools and these high schools, and I want to be able to be in front of these young musicians and show them that, hey, This isn't hard. This is possible. Look, I'm doing it myself. And I want to be able to help these kids
0: elevate to a level so we can help elevate the black community. How do you address the quote unquote cool factor that a lot of young people are seemingly primarily interested in when you're presenting them this music? Like you said, and I believe Bruce said it as well, a few of our guests have said it today, you know. Some people who don't know the history of it look at it as, quote unquote, white music. How do you address this cool factor and let them know, hey, this is something that can make you a person of the world?
6: I think that's a fantastic question. And I actually I was having this conversation with one of my professors at Tennessee State uh, University. Um, I think a lot of people like Bruce was saying or uh, Prof. Crawford was saying that a lot of times classical music can be seen as this thing where it has to be perfect. It has to be a certain way. You have to do it this way or you're out the door. But it doesn't have to be like that for us. We can help. We can help shape and we can help change classical music into something that we enjoy. And like you were saying earlier, linking it back to contemporary music. Um, I think that is very important in the aspect of getting people to understand, hey, it doesn't have to sound like this. It can sound like this as well.
0: Now, xavian I want to know what your future holds what should we be paying attention to with not only yourself but your entire generation of young classical musicians
5: well i think i mean i'm i want to say this first up i've been a part of this program called a Rondo, which has helped me out a ton it's to give you a brief summary it's free gives you free lessons free youth orchestra yada yada, yada and plenty of great opportunities they pay for summer camps as well which i think is huge because it's a huge networking thing now programs like this what they're hoping to do because it's not just free lessons they obviously have a goal in mind but um they're hoping to get more minorities in the symphonies and programs they're not just the only one there's the talent development program off in atlanta yosa yola things like this so what I think will happen is slowly but surely we'll see more more minorities in symphonies. Because what I notice when I go to symphonies, both in the concerts and on stage, there are very few people. Usually in the audience it's usually a white husband with her wife, with his wife, and maybe their kid if they're studying music. This You just kind of echo this all around the room. Mm-hmm. On stage, there's usually this one black dot. I say one black dot, but I'm talking about
0: a person. Man, like I'm a- gonna have to stop you there. Uh-huh. We are running out of time, but it's a pleasure to meet you. That is Xavion Davidson. He was joined by trumpeter Jabril Muhammad and Margaret Campbell-Holman of the Choral Arts Link. i want to thank you all for joining us today and the best of luck and futures to you, Xavion and Jabril. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha AF Lemley, and Paige Flager. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon, Feel Better. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Emily Siner and Nina Cardona. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at this is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ecolona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.